Good morning, church. We are in our last week studying through the book of Colossians. And to start, I want to tell you a story. I was sitting there, horizontally. My car had just rolled. And as I'm sitting there, a CD fell out of the door and hit me in the head. And I was thinking to myself, this was really embarrassing. Because what had happened just before was... I was getting really upset about the driver in front of me going really slow. I was thinking in my head, it's not that much snow on the road. He surely can pick up the pace. On top of that, doesn't he care that I'm driving to a church outreach event? So in my frustration, I passed him in a foot and a half of snow on a back road in my Ford Focus. And when I started spinning out, and rolling over and over, I eventually stopped in a position that made me look like the Midwest Stonehenge. Uh, it was at that point that the really nice guy who was now passing me slowed down and turned around to check to see if I was okay, and then he offered to take me where I was going so that I could get some help. And when he asked where I was going, I had to point... To the end of the road, I said, I'm going there to Harvest Church at the end of Douglas Road. He's like, oh, cool. Uh, what are you doing there on a Thursday night? I'm leading an outreach event. <laughs> I mean, what a lousy way to tell somebody you're going to church, let alone to invite them to go with you uh, to church. And, and, and so it was a very long and awkward ride the rest of the way as he took me to church, a church that I should have felt very comfortable inviting him to go to. It was a great church. Um, and he had you know, invite him to go attend with me. Uh, and one of the things that I realized in that moment was how you behave highlights what you believe. How you behave highlights what you believe. See, here's the issue with what I was doing. And in that moment, if I was being honest, in that moment, I didn't actually care about other people. Right? Like leading an outreach event would have you believe. Um, I didn't really care about other people. What I really cared about was that my time and my importance was more valuable than the safety of somebody else, let alone my own safety. And because of that behavior, I had a really hard time living and sharing the testimony of Jesus Christ in a scenario that, let's be honest, is tailor-made to invite someone to church. Someone pulls over and asks me to take me where I'm going, and I go, hey, let's go to that church together. I, I felt so embarrassed doing that in that moment. And so my ability, my, my testimony was hidden by my behavior. It was obscured by my behavior. And, and so what I learned that day was that your, your interactions with people matter a lot. Okay? Your interactions with people, they matter. They provide credibility to the testimony that you have in your life, which hopefully you'll be able to share with somebody, right? Um, and, and so I think when I look at the scope of, of the church today, there are a few things worse than a Christian that speaks loud about Christ and lives nothing like him, right? There are a few things worse, and it, maybe you're not a believer, you're kind of on the fence about Jesus, and you're like, part of the reason I'm on the fence or I'm like kind of resisting is not because of Jesus, but because of other Christians, Right? Like, it's really repugnant when there's a Christian who speaks loud about Christ and lives absolutely nothing like him. How you behave highlights what you believe. 
And so if you truly believe in the completeness of Christ and how he completes us, like we've been talking about in this series, then you're gonna, what you're going to do is you're going to be living a life that completely displays a complete testimony, pointing others to the complete life in Christ. I use that word a lot because that's the main driving theme in the book of Colossians is, is completeness. So no matter where it takes you, a life dedicated to following Jesus and living like him is greater than any other life. Uh, it's greater than a life without him. And so this morning what I want to talk about um, really resonates with one of our main core values here at our church. I and mean, the, the value is that Jesus is our everything. He's the main thing that we talk about, the one we try to live like. And, and so chapter 4 really begins to take all of that and make it really practical. How do we do that? How do we live a testimony to the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ? How does my life display that he's everything to me? So with that in mind, I'd invite you to go ahead and, and we're going to read the beginning of Colossians 4 together. So if you're able, would you stand up and we're going to read this together out loud. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verses 2 through 6. It goes like this. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. And live wisely among those who are not believers. And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Let's pray. You get a preview of my sermon notes. I'm just kidding. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word that speaks to us. And I pray that each one of us today would not just hear your word, and, and frankly, not even just believe, but that we would be transformed, that we would live like Jesus, that we would love like Jesus. And I pray that you would do that in each and every one of us this week. Speak to us in the way we need it. Some of us need encouragement, God. Some of us need a kick in the pants. Some of us need um, a little bit of perspective. Some of us need wisdom. And whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in your word this morning. Amen. You can have a seat. So we've been exploring this um, letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church um, that he's never been to in a city he's never been to. All right. Um, specifically, he's responding to a plea for help from a guy named Epaphras. This was the founding pastor of the church in Colossae. And... Uh, Paul is writing because Epaphras was asking for help dealing with a dangerous threat that was um, threatening his church. And this is the threat, a variation of the gospel. A variation of the gospel had bubbled up in this Christian community that basically said, you need Jesus plus these other things in order to be right with God. In order to be spiritually strong. You had to do these special practices, you had to have the, hear these certain messages from angels... In other words, it's great that you heard about Jesus from Epaphras or from Paul or from somebody else, but there's still more that you need to do to make your Christian life complete. It was promoting this super spirituality for people um, 
the, the, the super disciplined few, everything that really the church isn't meant to be, right? It was a system that was fostering proud superiority, saying, if you're good enough, you can get into this. And so Paul's saying that the good news, the, the mystery of God revealed in Christ Jesus, is not about the superiority of the systems of man, it's about the supremacy of the Son of Man, right? It's about Jesus. It's, it's not all these disciplines and secret messages that you need that are going to make your life complete. Paul's saying that when you get Jesus, you get everything, right? It, it's only Christ who makes us complete and makes us completely right with God. And so that's what the first two chapters of the book of Colossians are about. And then last week, uh, Jeff Totten, if you were here, chaplain for the Tigers, talked about how Paul practically applies this to the focus of our lives um, and how we relate to other people. Um, this week, what we're going to find is a practical guide to putting the mystery of Christ in you front and center as you live out your testimony. Okay, And the practical guide basically looks like this. Number one, pray continually. If you're taking notes, by the way, this is my outline, so I'm giving you a cheat code here. Pray continually. Number two, live purposefully. And number three, serve faithfully. And that's it. It's simple. Now, it's not easy all the time, but it's simple. He's encouraging this young uh, congregation in Colossae to treat every facet of their lives. Their, their prayer life with God, their everyday interactions with navigating you know, scenarios with other people, the relationships with the, that they have with other people, um, frankly, how they approach the longevity of their life, it, treat every facet of their lives as opportunities to bear witness to the wonderful mystery of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ living in us. In other words, this is what he's thinking. Despite every circumstance, every moment is a chance for the gospel to advance. Despite anything that happens in my life, any hard thing, any good thing, no matter what comes to me, every circumstance has an opportunity birthed within it. Every circumstance is a chance for the testimony of Jesus Christ, the gospel proclamation through my life, to be moved forward. Okay, So despite the circumstance, every moment is a chance for the gospel to advance. So the encouragement starts right here in verse 2 to number 1, pray continually. He says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Now i got to be honest, I read this and I'm hit front and center with this conviction. Brant, prayer has got to be your first priority, not your last resort. Right? Prayer's got to be the steering wheel, not the spare tire. In fact, that's why we say a lot around here that prayer is our power. Not because it's a good idea, because it's God's idea. God is inviting us to lay hold of this incredible power. But as I've lived, I've, I've realized this. A lot of times, most of us don't devote ourselves to prayer because we have no idea how powerful it really is. 
a lot of times we miss out on the power of what prayer is because we don't realize how powerful it really is. I mean, think about it. When Jesus died on the cross and defeated the enemy and rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and the veil was torn from top to bottom, you got access to God. You got access to God. And, and prayer is the pathway to, to utilize that. Right? Prayer is our power. And that's why we seek God in our gatherings and in our decisions and in our private lives. This is a core value here that prayer is our power. And I think a lot of times we maybe miss out on that because we don't realize how powerful it really is. I heard a, I heard a quote recently from 18th century pastor. His name was Samuel Chadwick. And he said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. I love that. You can accomplish more in three minutes of devoted prayer every day than in three decades of trying to beat the door down. Some of you might resonate with that. You've been trying so hard for so long, putting so much effort in, and the reality is you've been maybe trying to do it without God. It's hard to be devoted to prayer when we're constantly distracted from prayer. And so the enemy wants to make you think you don't need to pray, or that it's not a big priority, or it's not really that effective. He wants to distract you from the real power that's available to you. In a practical sense, Satan wants to tease you with a life that you can figure out and that you can manage all on your own. One where where you can find all the pieces to complete yourself and complete your own life. And it's really easy to get into that mode because I can see everything that's happening. I can understand. I can get my brain wrapped around everything that's happening There's a preacher, his name is H.B. Charles Jr. Great preacher, by the way. You should listen to some of his sermons. But he said in a sermon, he said, a failure to pray is a declaration of independence. Right? He's saying, like, I actually don't really need God. That's God saying amen. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Um... But, but think about this. When I'm alert in my mind, he says, to be devoted to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Right? So when I'm alert in my mind to the reality of everything I need God for, and at the same time I'm holding intention that I'm thankful for everything that God has already been doing for me, then I find the motivation for devotion. Okay? So, so my, my tests and my trials keep me alert to my dependence. And my testimony keeps me aware of his dependability. I'll say that again. My tests and trials keep me alert to my dependence. And my testimony keeps me thankful and aware of his dependability. So when I'm aware of my reality and I'm aware of his reliability, that's when being devoted in prayer makes sense. I need you, God, and I know you'll come through. Be devoted to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And he goes on to ask for prayer for himself. He says, verse 3, pray for us too that God would give us 
many opportunities to speak about the mysterious, mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I would proclaim this message as clearly as I should. And, and maybe you're reading in the NIV, and I actually really like how it says it here. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Remember, Paul is writing from prison here. He's chained to a Roman guard while he's writing this. But he does not ask that God open a door to get Paul out of prison. Paul is not saying, get me out of this painful place. Paul is not thinking, God's will is that I'm no longer imprisoned right now. God's will for my life is that the pain goes away, that the difficulty goes away, that, 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 that the challenge gets minimized. That is not Paul's prayer here. He's not asking that God will let him out. Notice he says, pray that God may open a door for what? For our message. That's why I'm here in chains. Not get me out, it's get the good news out. Get the testimony out, get the message out. Out. Because the churches in Colossae and Laodicea that he's writing to, they don't need Paul. They need Paul's testimony pointing to Jesus Christ. Amen? And I think a lot of times today it's really easy to think that if you're following God's will for your life, your life's going to be pain-free, things are going to go well, and that if you do experience any type of some suffering, there must be something wrong with how you're doing it. Maybe there's something wrong with your faith. And, and frankly, if that's true, Paul's an example of a pretty terrible Christian because he suffered a lot. He's constantly in prison, getting beat up. Well, I mean, he has a list at, at one point in, in the New Testament where he's like, well, I went to prison this many times. I got beat up this many times. I was shipwrecked. I was, left, I was stoned to the point of death twice for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and I love this. Even while stuck in, an, in a very restrictive situation, a painful place, Paul is still looking for new and creative opportunities to get the message of Jesus out. Because in his mind, why else am I here? This is God's will for me. I already knew from the word he gave me, from the, 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 the calling on my life, I already know that I've been called to get this message out. So if I'm here in this place, then I must be called to do it here. You see how he takes what he knows to be sure about God and what God has spoken to him, and he applies it to a scenario that he's like, what do I do now? So instead of living reactively, right, getting angry or bitter, or anxious, or constantly negative about his situation. No, he, he's living with purpose. Right? Everything in his life now has meaning because his continual prayers have shifted his focus in his life. And so, so here's what happens. When you pray continually, it's going to create a shift where, number two, you're going to start living purposefully. Pray continually. Number two, live purposefully. And, and we see that here in the next couple of verses. Check it out. He says, live wisely among those who are not believers. Let me just stop there. Okay, this is, I didn't plan to say this, but it is possible to have an abrasive boldness for Jesus. And even though you were ready 
and you were looking for ways to get the message out to waste the moment because you were unkind or, or careless. Just the previous verse, previous couple of verses. That's why I'm here in change. Pray that I, I want to get the message out. But then he goes on to say, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. And then what? Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. So that you actually have the right kind of answer for everybody. Um, and, and in the original language that this was written in, there was actually direction implied in this. Though it's not exactly the best English uh, for the context of these verses, the word-for-word -word translation that would have made sense to the original audience would have sounded something like this. With wisdom, walk toward the outside ones. It's kind of clunky English, again, which is why they say, walk with wisdom among unbelievers. But in other words, how do you, how do you, walk, how do you live among unbelievers? How do, you, how do you live as a Christian in a world that does not share your faith? You don't run away from people. You walk toward them. You walk toward them. In wisdom, yes, but we don't hide from the world in fear. We don't throw stones at them in accusation or anger. We don't keep them at an arm's length. We walk towards them as Christ would in wisdom. All right? Because here's the deal. There's no such thing as a Christian that is not called to be reaching the world with the love of Christ. That's not a category that exists in the kingdom of God. There are no unsent believers. God saved you, and then he sent you. If you want to know what God's will is for you in your, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, in your world, this is God's will for you. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity so that you'll have, uh, and let your conversation be gracious and attractive so you'll have the right response for everyone. And I think too often Christians get known for, for what we're against. The world thinks that we just keep people out until they completely agree with us. And I know that not to be true. I know many of you. Amazing examples of people who are gracious and attractive and like winsome and wise. But for some reason there's this, this view out there that a lot of Christians, we just we keep people out until they completely agree with us. And there has to be this shift. Like we have to move toward people before they believe. Why? When you think about your own story, right? What, what's your testimony? At some point, somebody inserted the gospel into the conversation and revealed to you the beauty of Christ. And someone, someone walked towards you in wisdom. Now, that's your calling. And I get it. Blaming is easier than blessing. It's easier to call out somebody and correct them in a Facebook comment, because that always works, than it is to live intentionally in a way that when you do share your testimony, when you do get the opportunity to speak about Jesus, people go, oh yeah, 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 that totally makes sense, because your life highlights that. Right, so when you're walking toward unbelievers and wisdom, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be be gracious and attractive. Guys, we're not called to just exist in our holy huddles. That is not the calling of the community defined by Christ. We're called to 
winsome wisdom. Uh, many of you know when I was in high school, I went to Harbor Light Christian School, uh, just north of here. And when I was there, I played on the school soccer team. I played a goalkeeper because they just did not like running. That was why I tried out. <laughs> One of the seasons I played there, though, our head coach brought on an assistant coach who he had recently met through a business transaction, and this guy was a baller. Okay, he was—he was in his 50s or his 60s, but he still had game. I mean. He was a former pro in England. He played on one of Manchester United's youth teams. Awesome player, great coach, not a Christian. So you have an unbelieving coach in a position to have a big influence in the lives of all these Christian school kids at a Christian school wearing the name of Christ on his uniform. So needless to say, there was a lot of Christian people who were not happy with that decision, like some of the other Christian schools or families in the area, for starters. But we chose to walk toward him and not run away. And I'll give credit where credit is due. Our, coach, our head coach was the one who really chose to start walking toward him in wisdom. And, and we followed his lead and we loved on him. And at the same time, we stayed true to our faith. Right? So we, we prayed continually before practices, after games. Um, we were disciplined to be respectful and gracious. And sometimes... I even saw our team embrace an attitude of humility to receive discipline because we knew who was watching. There's humility. There was faithful devotion. It wasn't just prayer when a practice started or when a game ended. I mean, we would literally, in the middle of practices, we would take a break for a Bible study or we would pray over injured players as, a, as the ambulance was on their way, right? Or we would have worship music in the car on the way to games. And, and so all of this is going on. At the same time, our coach is personally sharing his testimony, explaining the gospel, inviting this guy to church, and this is all going on while our Christian neighbors are criticizing us. At the end of the season, he was so drawn in by a group of teenagers and how Jesus could transform them and work in them and, and see the genuine faith, imperfect and still growing, that he asked at the end, what it meant to, to know more about what it meant to follow Jesus for himself. Okay? Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. Sure, there's alternative ways suggested about how to handle that situation. People were telling us not to walk toward him like this. People were telling us to keep him at an arm's length until he was like us. But what we saw was Jesus work through our testimony. Despite the circumstance, every moment is a chance for the gospel to advance. I'll say it again, another core objective here at our church our core value is that outreach is our objective. Guys, lost people matter to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to condemn but to save. That should be defining of us, right? So we pray continually, we live purposefully, and then number three, we serve faithfully. So Paul, Paul finishes this letter with a list of just greetings to people and from people. He says, take a kiss, we'll give you a full report. So remember, this is a letter. We're reading someone's mail. He's writing to the church, referencing people that they know. They love these people. Take a kiss. We'll give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He's a beloved brother, faithful helper, and he serves me in the Lord's work. I sent him to you for the very purpose 
to let you know how we're doing and to encourage you. I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of our own people, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who's in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark feel so welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call Justice, is also sending his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers, and they're working with me here for the kingdom of God. What a comfort they've been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, which is the word complete, fully confident that you're following the whole will of God. I, I can assure you that he prays hard for you, and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis, neighboring cities. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After you've read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too, and you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here's my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. Remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. Now when I first looked at the end of this passage, I actually wasn't really going to preach on it. Because it's just a list of names, right? Um, but the more I looked at these names, the more significant they seemed. So stick with me here. Paul mentions ten different names here. He mentions Tychicus, who's actually mentioned a number of different times in the New Testament. So we know that he traveled with Paul, but we don't have any evidence that he ever preached or taught or planted a church. But we do know that Paul trusted him because he delivered money to the struggling church in Jerusalem. He delivered a number of letters by hand to communities where these letters eventually became letters of the New Testament, um, like the letter to the Colossians. And we know that Paul calls him beloved brother, faithful helper in the Lord, fellow servant. You got Tychicus, you got Onesimus, which if you remember that name, it shows up in the book of Philemon, right? Um, Onesimus was a runaway servant, slave, bond servant of Philemon. He runs away. The cultural expectation was that if he ever came back, he had a huge punishment waiting for him. Paul is writing the letter to Philemon to say, hey, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back, but treat him like Christ would, not like your culture would. Okay? This letter and the letter to Philemon are going at the same time because Philemon is part of this community. Okay? So it's a sister letter in a sense. Okay? So he becomes a follower of Jesus when he's away. Paul trains him, disciples him, and now Paul considers him a faithful brother and a beloved brother. Then Paul mentions three other people who are Jewish believers. You've got Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus named Justice. Aristarchus was arrested with Paul. Uh, Mark, this is crazy, Mark had a serious falling out with Paul. They had different priorities, different strategies as they were um, on mission, but eventually they got back together and reconciled, um, and uh, Mark eventually becomes the writer, obviously, of the gospel according to Mark. Then you have Jesus and Justice. We know nothing about him. This is the only place he so shows up in Scripture. We just know he's a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. Then you have Epaphras, which you remember is the founding pastor of the church in Colossae. He's in Rome asking for Paul's help. Paul calls him a servant of Christ. You have Luke, the beloved doctor. He travels with Paul all the way to the end. He eventually writes... You got it? The book of Luke. Okay, um... And he also writes the entire book of Acts. 
And then there's Demas. Now this one's interesting to me because Demas was once close to Paul. He says, Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. So they're sending greetings together. They're, they're partners. But then later, towards the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes this, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. He got caught up in the grandeur and the, the allure of everything in the world, and he, and he left the mission. And Paul mentions Nympha, again, the only time she's mentioned, but she's apparently a wealthy businesswoman with a home large enough to hold a church in it. Um, and then finally in verse 17, you've got a guy named Archippus, who apparently seems to be a young man struggling with follow-through. Um, and Paul kind of gives him a pep talk, like, carry out the ministry that the Lord gave you. And this is all fascinating to me, hopefully astonishing as well, because what I see isn't just names to wade through. I see a list of people, a list of real-life stories, a list of testimonies. Some of those names were faithful and trustworthy servants of Christ. You, you got Tychicus, Onesimus, Epaphras, Aristarchus. Some of them went on to be giants of the faith like Luke and Mark. Some of them we know nothing about, like Justice and Nympha. One fell away and completely abandoned the mission, possibly abandoned the Lord in Demas, and one was really just struggling with obedience, Archippus. And so what I see when I read these verses, I see real people living real lives in a real place, facing real issues. In other words, they're just like us. The Apostle Paul is interacting with these people, these real people, but not just that. He is relying on these people. Paul understood that faithfulness in the Christian life, especially over the long haul and through the painful seasons, is not an individual sport. He understood that serving Christ and, and leadership in God's kingdom cannot be accomplished alone, even for Paul. And he understood that, that, that some survival and growth of the church depended on faithful people who prayed continually, who lived purposefully, and served faithfully. He got it that the kingdom of God advances not when Paul gets out of prison, but when his testimony gets out to the world. Just like Paul, our objective here our value here is that family is our framework, that we grow better together. You're not going to do the Christian life well on your own. And I get it. There are people like Demas who might desert you. There are people like Archippus who might be sputtering along next to you and you're like, I don't know if I can rely on them. There are other people that you don't really know are going to become giants of the faith someday. And Paul's going like, I need all of these people. No, they're not perfect, but this is God's plan, that the church of Jesus Christ, the revealer, the foundation of the truth, of the mystery, of the glorious mystery of God that's been hidden for centuries, is now delivered through this imperfect group of people called the church, that we find hurt and hope together. This is God's plan. 
could have come and did it himself, but he decided to reveal through the brokenness of each one of our lives the mystery of his glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Despite the circumstance, every moment is a chance for the gospel to advance. So what are we going to do this week? I'm going to land the plane on this. Number one, we're going to talk to God about people. We're going to talk to God about people. Number two, we're going to seek out ways to talk to people about God. And then we're going to repeat. We're going to talk to God about people. We're going to start by reaching up to God in prayer in a continual rhythm. We're going to be praying for other people. And we're going to be praying for open doors to testify. Before I ever enter into my mission field, I've got to be on my knees in the prayer closet. Or whatever that looks like for you. I've got to talk to God about people before I talk to people about God. Okay, and number two, we're going to seek out ways to talk to people about God. We're going to live purposefully and look for opportunities to testify. Guys, consider every moment as something specifically designed by God for you to testify of his greatness and goodness. Are you going to like those moments all the time? Probably not. but it's possible you are living in the center of God's will when the wheels are falling off. And God's going like, this is the moment. This is the moment that even when the world thinks that you should be falling apart and blaming everybody, that you go, I'm aware of my reality and I'm aware of his reliability and let me speak to the testimony of Jesus Christ. You want to live in a way that puts an exclamation point on your testimony, not a question mark. All right, so number one, we're going to talk to God about people. Number two, we're going to seek out ways to talk to people about God. And number three, we're going to repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat for the rest of our lives. We are going to stay faithful to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We are not going to do this just when it feels good. Okay? We are not going to do this only in the fair weather, only when it's convenient to name the name of Christ. No, 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 we're going to do this for the long haul, no matter the challenges, the external pressures, the internal fears, no matter what, in the blessing and in the battle, in the pleasure and in the pain, in the hope and in the hurting. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's what we're going to do. Despite the circumstance, every moment is a chance for the gospel to advance. Father, thank you for the book of Colossians the letter that you inspired Paul to write to this church that we find so much meaning in today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually that the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ living in his people, I pray that that would be the mark of our lives That would be the flavor of how people recognize us, is that these people are a lot like Jesus. 
So I pray that you would use us to advance your kingdom, to testify to your goodness and your greatness. I pray that you would transform this people to be more and more like Jesus every day, and that our world will be better for it. Amen.